Well, good morning, Menlo Church. So glad to be with you. Shout out to all of our Bay Area campuses. Saratoga, it was great to be with you in person last week. Mountain View, San Mateo right here in Menlo Park. And those joining us online, thank you so much for continuing this journey as we dive into the rest of the story uh, throughout this summer together. If you haven't been with us, um, you can catch up online, including Adam's great message last week, focusing on Noah and the flood. Uh, and if you haven't been with us, this flannel graph next to me probably makes very little sense. So let me catch you up uh, real quick. We've been talking through the kind of the difference in the way that many of us grew up, if you're a Christian, in church world. And uh, the way if we grew up and we weren't careful, um, maybe our faith and our understanding didn't grow up as well. And the byproduct of a flannel graph faith, maybe this puppet ministry idea, like the things that we were ready to understand and experience, uh, the, the byproduct of that kind of a faith faith is that it, it, it never grows up with us. As a matter of fact, we will often grow out of it rather than it growing up with us. This week, we're going to focus on the Tower of Babel and uh, how this story, it maybe has more relevance in our day than it has in a very long time. But before we get started, I'm going to pray for us. And if you've never been here before, never heard me speak, I pray kneeling. And the reason that I do that is because all of these stories and what God wants to do with them in our lives is bigger than each and every one of us. It's all of us. It's this bigger, incredible story that we get to be a part of. And so maybe it's to turn down the noise of your week. Maybe it's to refocus the week ahead. Maybe it's for you that God might show you how much he loves you, even if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian today. Would you pray with me in this moment? God, we do, we humble ourselves before you, and we ask that you would help some of us to just turn down the noise of our lives. For others of us, God, that the, the sound of your love, the sound of access that we have to you through your son Jesus would be louder than it's ever been before. God, would you help us as we dive into this story, this story that many of us have maybe heard some part of, um, to see the truth in it for each and every one of us today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wonder, uh, what's the first piece of technology that really grabbed your attention? And I know that we're going to all sort of answer this question differently based on when we grew up. Uh, for some of you, it's like the first TV that you ever had in your home. That's a thing. For some of you, um, maybe it's your first computer. Uh, eventually, though, we got cell phones, and uh, these looked a lot different when they first came out, right? Uh, and over time, it feels like the pace of acceleration and innovation has just gotten faster and faster and faster. One of the things that really blew my mind as a kid was the DVD. Uh, if you're younger, let me let you know, a DVD uh, was what you watched a movie on. And you're like, how does, that doesn't sound anything like Netflix. It was very different time. And it actually replaced something called a VHS tape. You can Google it. Uh, and the way that we would get VHS tapes to watch new release movies is we would go to these physical places called Blockbuster or like a mom and pop equivalent, and we would rent the tapes to watch them. Now, the really annoying part of this experience was when you were done watching it and you wanted to get it back to Blockbuster, you had to rewind it. And so they made these devices that were so actually very helpful. You put it in and all it did was just rewind the tape. You can finish it with me if you grew up in that era because to be kind, you rewind. It rhymed, right? There was, it was like a preacher came up with that. And uh, I know that for some of you, you're like, wow, you are way older than I thought you were. And that's hurtful. Um, 
For some of you, though, it's, it's much newer, right? It's social media platforms, it's virtual reality, it's augmented reality, it's, maybe now it's artificial intelligence. Technology is captivating, isn't it? That's not new. That's been around for a long time. And when we learned the story of the Tower of Babel, especially if you learned it as a kid in church on the flannel graph, I'm guessing it didn't seem to have a huge technology component connected to it. It was pretty simple, right? We were told about a people who had grown so prideful and so arrogant, which these people don't look very prideful or arrogant, but just assume they are. Um, They were so prideful and so arrogant that they believed they could build a city and specifically a tower that would go to heaven and they could live autonomously. They could live without God. And so as a result, God scattered them. But actually, the error was more connected to technology than we normally think about. Let's read the text together. It says, now the whole earth had one language and a common speech, and people moved eastward. They found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Did you catch that? All of the Tower of Babel, it was built around this incredibly brand new, innovative piece of technology, the brick. (laughs) It was a big thing, right? Their first plan, what they were like, what should we do with this thing, was to build a world-class city. So what's the big deal, right? How bad could this have really been? God had just promised, we talked about last week, that he wouldn't end the world with a global flood again. And maybe like for him, that was just keeping his other world-ending options open, right? Like, what are we doing? But the problem that we're going to see with the Tower of Babel is the problem that exists in each one of us, that we are actually made to be captivated by the latest tech keynote by that global advancement, by a promise of innovation. They simply draw us in. But without a continued connection to our creator, it's too much. As a matter of fact, great technology without sound theology always reminds us of this lesson, that what captivates us can hold us captive. And if you work in tech or you find yourself on the leading edge of innovation in some space, you should write that line down because it is far more common in our moment than we want to give it credit. So the first question that we've been looking at with all these stories we learned as kids or maybe you kind of heard about somewhere over the course of this summer is, is it true? Is the story true? If you learned this story through the flannel graph era of your faith, it probably didn't warrant a lot of further discussion, right? You had already heard about God creating everything from nothing in seven literal days. You had already heard about this global flood zoo cruise that Adam talked to us about. You were sort of on board. You got it. This all felt on brand. But as we got older, 
This one may have been one of those stories that was the easiest to dismiss. It may have been one of those stories that felt the most strange, mainly because it feels unusually short with the stories that we've read so far, with very few details, as well as the fact that this part of Genesis, it represents a pretty big shift, a pretty big shift from direct, specific uh, events, regardless of how you think about them, uh, to what comes next in the rest of Genesis. And so for each and every one of us, kind of as we step back, we have to look, about, look at and think about what this story means in our faith today. So here's the thing. Once again, as we have gotten older, this may have felt strange, but it doesn't mean there isn't something for you in it. I'm going to introduce you to a few different views of the text that faithful followers of Jesus hold to all of, just as a reminder. And if you're interested in learning more about this, you can find it in a book that Adam referenced last week called Genesis, History, Fact, Fiction, or History, Fiction, or Neither. If if you haven't checked out that book, I would encourage you to take a glance at it. It's just a helpful book to break down the way that some some folks think about these stories. But as we look at that, the first view is literal, literal with implications from a global flood. We've talked about this, that hermeneutics or the way that we study the Bible is connected. And so you can tell that this this view, it's connected to the other ones, that if you think that uh, that a young earth, a few thousand years old, was made over the course of seven days, Uh, and there was a global flood, then a literal interpretation of the Tower of Babel uh, where language and nations are really created because people are dispersed, that feels like it makes tons of sense. This is a very common view historically for followers of Jesus. See, God wanted people to disperse and fill the earth, but instead they wanted to amass power for themselves. And that's precisely what this represented. In this view, language, national identity, and eventual global disbursement all came from this moment. The second is a literal regional event. The idea here, particularly if you hold to a regional flood view, you think that the flood was not a global flood, but a regional flood, um, or you hold to theistic evolution, like we talked about in week one, is that this event impacted a specific group of people in a specific area, but there were others that were already in other places globally. And this kind of reflects God's special relationship with a specific group of people. That's another view. And the third view is that this is a myth adapted to the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, Think of it kind of like the chicken and the egg. See, some people, they see the fact that these stories exist in antiquity beyond the Bible as evidence for their validity and divine origin. In other words, they are common because they are true and came from God. However, there are also those who believe that this was already being circulated as a myth at the time. And this is being adapted to the Hebrew scriptures and used poetically to forward specific ideas for God's people. So those are kind of the three major views as we think about this that, again, lots of different people hold to. This seems like a good time to remind you that unity does not mean uniformity. Being a Christian is built on a common foundation, a common foundation that Jesus actually existed, fully God, fully man. He lived a perfect life. He died on your behalf, and he came back from the dead so that we could place our faith in him, turn from our sin, and experience a better life today, abundant in him, and an eternal life waiting. That's the foundation of the Christian faith. The Bible is our authority. 
It's the thing that helps us to know how to walk out that faith. But we can have different understandings of the Hebrew Scriptures and a common foundation of the ethic of following Jesus. Some of you, you can't imagine how someone views this differently than you. I have convers- It's fun, actually, this summer. I have conversations with people before and after every service at all of our campuses where someone will come to me from one perspective and they'll say, I can't imagine how anybody holds to that view. That's crazy. And then I have a conversation with somebody that holds to this view, and you know what they tell me? They say, I can't imagine how anybody holds to that view. It's crazy. And that's the point, right? That we have this thing that can bind us together. That thing, that reality, that identity is Jesus. The great news of these stories is that we can learn from them. Regardless of which one of these views you hold to, there is a core idea that is something we are supposed to see and apply together, that what captivates us can hold us captive. And if we're not careful, you will be held captive by things, people, and ideas that are harmful to you and others. So as we consider this story, where people are unified to do something together, we have to ask, what went wrong? I consider myself something of a car person, and because of that, I really don't understand when I get into people's cars uh, who are just like okay with unexplained lights, noises, warning lights, problems, right? I want to, like, let's pull the car over. This is telling you there's something wrong, you know? As a matter of fact, I have one friend who really, it's, it's the grace of God that I'm still this person's friend. Um, he has a couple of warning lights, like, on his gauges uh, that he has just decided to ignore, I know. And you know what he does? He puts electrical tape over them. <laughs> the car is like, I'm telling you there's something right. Like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And it's not because he's taken it somewhere to make sure there's nothing really wrong. It's because he's tired of seeing it. See, I think a lot of us, we have some warning lights on the gauges of our life that are going off as well. And we learn to ignore them too especially because we are surrounded by a culture that is consistently offering ways to mask or hide those internal problems by performing, medicating, or accumulating our way out of it. If you can just do better, get more, you'll be okay. But it points to two of the problems we're gonna find in Genesis 11 from the Tower of Babel. See, the, the problem that's true in us, just like the problem that was true in them, is pride and fear. Pride and fear are core to what drives us away from God. Pride is the idea that we think more highly of ourselves than we should. It's the idea that we know better than God. And in this situation, the people believed that they could outsmart God, which is usually a pretty terrible bet, right? In our day, pride can push us to live life without limits, even God-given limits. We throw them all off. Pride is what led Adam and Eve to disobey God in the garden. It's what led people to the brink of their own catastrophe in the flood. And it's why they disobeyed God to disperse and instead tried to build this massive city and tower. Pride and fear. Fear, in this context, is the underlying dread of the unknown. And wrapped up in that, the desire out of our own pride to control the unknown so that we can avoid pain, so that we don't have to trust anyone. We all have fears, and they can get mixed in with our pride, and they lead to some terrible, terrible decisions. Why did they want to build this tower so high? 
Well, Josephus, an ancient church historian, he theorized that it could have been to create a structure that was tall enough to withstand another global flood. The idea being, hey, this thing that just happened that we've heard about, we, we never want that to happen again. And so now, not very many years later, they're building this thing to try and protect themselves rather than trusting that what God said he would never do again, he wouldn't. Fear and pride. So can we build something better? See, if the Tower of Babel was built from pride and fear, what can we build from trust and humility? What does a better tomorrow look like that is unified around our trust and humility in the godly good for our world rather than the personal pride that our fear can create? See, the first thing that we need to acknowledge is our instinct to often blame God for what feels like his desire to keep us from pleasure and comfort in our lives. It can feel this way, but our feelings are not always our friends. And the Tower of Babel did not represent pleasure. God was actually stopping them from greater pain, was stopping them from greater harm in the world. As a matter of fact, uh, the pride and fear that drove the Tower of Babel drives us. It can drive us to live life as though God does not exist. 20th century French philosopher Etienne Bourne uh, warned us of our continued propensity for this very problem. He said it this way, practical atheism is not the denial of the existence of God but complete godlessness of action. It is a moral evil, implying not the denial of the absolute validity of the moral law, but simply rebellion against the law. See, we have once again found unity in something other than Jesus. Our unity is our own hubris, our pride to do what we want, when we want, how we want, without any concern for the implications of those choices. So how different, how different from the Tower of Babel and the people around it really are we anyway? How often does our desire for comfort and pleasure lead us to try and make decisions to insulate ourselves, not only to be our own God in practice, but also our own salvation, or at a minimum to try to avoid our need for salvation at all? We are good enough. We've figured it out on our own. Maybe the question for you is, what areas of clear guidance from God? You know that God says, this is the way you should live your life, and this is the way you have it. What clear areas of guidance from God and his word are you ignoring out of fear and pride, rather than surrendering in trust and humility? Trust and humility would say, even when I don't understand it, God, I'll be obedient, because I understand this is the plan and path for my life. There are compromises that you have rationalized and justified, and you live in a world that is amping you up to rationalize and justify. But God wants us to have a life that's connected to him. And when we choose to disobey what the Bible calls sin, we choose to suffer. And then we wonder why. And then we blame God. And he says, no, no, I've told you how to live differently. You're just ignoring me. See, Jesus, Jesus, he he didn't build a tower for us. (laughs) It's so much better than that. This problem that they were trying to solve This problem is impossible for us to solve on our own by design. The infection of sin and human rebellion, it has already spread, and the condition is terminal and universal. Just last week, we were looking at the divine reset for humanity because of the sin of humanity. And now, just a few chapters later, it's as though things have gotten to the same place as God was trying to address then. Jesus didn't build a tower for you to climb to him. 
He came down to us, fully God and fully man. He accomplished in his perfect life, his sinless death and his supernatural resurrection, what the Tower of Babel never could. The offer of eternal relationship to you and me, fully paid, if we would turn from our own way and choose to follow him. So where will we unify? Into that identity? See, if identity is the new idolatry, the the gods that we settle for, we can live this pretty counter-cultural life by unifying around this identity in Christ as our deepest reality, as the most true part of ourselves. It will allow all the things that divide us to unite us. In addressing the divide of the early church around the categories and identity politics of their day, the apostle Paul put it this way. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, Paul wasn't saying that social and societal categories didn't matter. He was saying they didn't matter as much as our newfound identity in Christ. See, they couldn't provide a level or type of unity that he could. It can form us into the likeness of our Savior when we choose unity around him. I understand that this is very countercultural for our moment, But the good news of the testimony of Jesus' followers is that we have thousands of years where men and women have faithfully walked this out, even when it was culturally unpopular, even when they suffered for doing it. So what's your professional identity? Successful? Sought after? Innovative? How do you see that? How do you see that part of yourself through the lens of your identity in Christ, not the other way around. What is your family identity? Put together, keeping up with appearances, providing everything anyone could ever want. How do you see that part of yourself through the lens of your identity in Christ, not the other way around? What about your ethnic or cultural identity, your sexual or gender identity? We are constantly being told that these are the most foundational answers to who you are, But the Bible says they aren't. When we depend on God, it is our identity in Christ that shapes everything else. It doesn't mean that they don't matter. It means they don't matter as much. Even on a day like today, where we are remembering and thanking God for our nation, which I think is warranted, as imperfect as it is, because every nation is imperfect, we won the historic lottery. We are are in a place and at a time like no other time in human history. But here's the thing that can happen. As we prepare to celebrate Independence Day, we can unintentionally place our identity in Christ in submission to our national identity as Americans if we aren't careful. We should be careful. It's not that it doesn't matter. It's that it doesn't matter as much as our identity in Christ does. See, one of the interpretations that we can take from the Tower of Babel story is that they tried to build this amazing thing and got in trouble for it, so let's just not build anything. But that's not the lesson for us to take from this. Many of you, you are in this region because you believe a better tomorrow is possible and you're working to build it. And I believe it is too. Over the last couple of weeks, I've spent hours with some of the industry leaders in the space of artificial intelligence 
who are also a part of our church community. They're asking great questions about how we bring our identity in Christ to this work in startups and major large language learning models and some of the biggest organizations working on it. As a matter of fact, honestly, if you're interested and you work in this space, you wanna be connected with this, just send me an email. I'd love to connect you. My email is just pubank at menlo.church. I respond to every email that comes to me, including the one you wanna send to me mad about something. I'll even respond to that one. See, if we can faithfully follow Jesus and try to figure out how to trust and how to demonstrate humility, how they show up in what we're building, that's the right path. But without it, I believe that the modern day version of artificial intelligence untethered from a biblical framework or moral reality is our moment of the Tower of Babel. It's our modern Tower of Babel. It doesn't have to be though. See, pride and fear, they will naturally draw us to decisions that pull us away from God's best for us. There's a verse that's tucked into this passage and it's easy to miss. God shares his thoughts from within the triune Godhead. It says, the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. See, a unified world built on pride and fear is unimaginably dangerous, no matter how we justify it, and we can all justify it. It takes intentional time with God in his word, time with people in a community of faith like this one, and regular spiritual practices to choose trust and humility so that we can be captivated by Jesus, so that he would shape the way we do everything in our life What if the story of artificial intelligence and machine learning in our moment became one about a group of Jesus followers who were committed to bring the truest part of themselves, their connection to their creator and their commitment to their savior, to the work itself and to ethical constraints, the problems it solved and the way it was shaping humility that we could never find in Babel. Jesus points to the real hope of human innovation found in him when he says, with man this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. God does not want you to shrink your capacity for innovation. He wants you to tether it to your creator. This dream, it isn't mine, it's God's. The apostle Paul put it this way, he says, so whatever you eat, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, whether you work at Google, whether you work at Meta, whether you work at OpenAI, whether you're doing a startup, whether you're taking care of kids tomorrow, whether you, no matter what you're doing, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. There is more that hangs in the balance for us choosing the level of our unity. Our unity in the trust and the humility that flows from our identity in Christ, it can offer the clearest sign and the most meaningful invitation to a watching world about a conversation of countercultural faith in Jesus that we will ever have. It worked 2,000 years ago. It worked in cultures that were antagonistic to Jesus and it can work again. The difference between the essentials of our faith and the non-essentials of our faith is important. We should have convictions, but we should find unity in the person and work of Jesus above everything. 
Now, if you've been with us, you know that we've been practicing a spiritual practice called Lectio Divina over the course of this series. If you want to learn more about this, you can go to menlo.church slash the rest of the story, and you can find guided uh, passages for Lectio Divina over the course of the whole series. But as we finish, I'm going to pray a prayer that sort of serves to take us to the Tower of Babel. It isn't just about reading the text, but ideally studying the passage, understanding what's true of it for my life, how I apply the truth of God's word, and then ask God to take me there, that it might linger with me this week, that I might talk about it at lunch, that it might come up this week with someone else, that God would shape, form you and me around who he is and who he's called us to be. Would you pray with me? God, we lift up this tremendously unique story to you. God, I I think about the moment around the Tower of Babel when someone came up with the idea and they began the work and there was the planning and the details to figure out what the city would look like and what this tower would look like and then mobilizing people and all the things that would have been necessary over and over and over again, day after day, watching the progress without the person It was really for. And God, I think about the pride and the fear that was fueling that in the hearts and the lives of those doing it. And God, I pray that as we think back to that moment, you would reveal in me, reveal in us, the pride and the fear that is fueling choices in our life today. That where we're rationalizing, where we're justifying, cutting corners, doing it our own way, elbowing you out of the process, thinking that we've outsmarted you, God, would you teach us to trust you? Would you grant us humility to see our reality as it truly is? God, that all of who we are would be in submission to all of who you are. God, as that tower was destroyed and people went their own way. God, maybe there are areas in our life where it feels like you've destroyed something that we're working on and you've sent us somewhere we were unwilling to go before, but you wanted us to go there. Would you help us to see that plan? Would you help us to trust you? If that's created bitterness in us, God, would you you heal that bitterness that we might pursue you again? God, grant us the eyes to see you as you truly are, that the thing, the person that we are most captivated by might be you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.